Welcome to episode 29 of Breakfast with an Alcoholic. My name is Randall. I'm your alcoholic host, and I am very glad you're here today. You are in luck. We're taking the smorgasbord approach to the podcast, so there's going to be a little something for everyone. First, Jane and I discuss her chosen topic, fear, uncertainty, overwhelmed, medication, meditation. Then, Daniel B. shares a true story from the bad old days called A Day with My Drug Dealer. And then, as though that's not enough, well, it's yours truly with something I wrote called My First Alcoholic. We're really glad you're here. Get yourself a cup of coffee. Join us. It's time for breakfast with an alcoholic, wherever you podcast. Hey, hey, welcome to breakfast with an alcoholic. And I am not alone here. I am with... Hi, it's me, Jane, a.k.a. Miss Sober Jane. So you and I are going to talk about a topic which has not really been previously disclosed to me, but you're going to tell me. Anyway, so... Let's dive right in. What are we well, talking so about? Well, so today, my friend, you put out something really great. Well, you always put out pieces that are really great. But one line from your piece this morning that really hit me was um, you said, I was confronting some moments of real doubt and fear over the last couple of days. There's a fair amount of uncertainty in my life. And that really hit me like a ton of bricks. So today... I would love to discuss the topics of fear, uncertainty, overwhelmed, medication, and meditation. And I think we both have been experiencing some of the same emotions lately. So I think it comes together really cute. Well, I think there is naturally a lot of fear in all of this, right? I mean, when you, you think back to the to the active alcoholic addict days, like that's all fear. Like most of us ran like a hundred percent on fear. And so like, yeah, you get sober. There's machinery still (laughs) runs pretty well on fear. Well, it's funny because one of my biggest problems is fear. And, and I mean, I'm afraid of my own shadow. I always have been, but now even in sobriety, I mean, I can take it as far as you know, when my routine gets broken up a little, like usually on Fridays, I do laundry in the morning, I clean the apartment, all of the above. And I haven't had a chance to do that today. And my fear, like pretty paralyzing fear is that tomorrow the laundry room's going to be full, there's going to be cockroaches in the apartment because I didn't clean today. You know, it's interesting, because as we talk about this, I think we can all see all the common thinking Mm -hmm. patterns you know, that we have, you know, you, you, you hear it all the time, but you know, you go to meetings and you talk to alcoholics and addicts and we all have this kind of, Oh my God, the world is about mm-hmm. to end. There was something I should have done that I didn't done that is going to cause an absolute catastrophe for everyone mm-hmm. on the planet. There is no escaping this. There is no hope. <laughs> like, I mean, like you just build and build and that's where you start. Right. And then it goes yeah. up from there. And I, I just think that soundtrack, for me at least, like that soundtrack was just intolerable. And the only thing that pushed the mute button was oh, yeah. drinking. Oh, yeah. It's funny. My I was talking to my sponsor this morning, and she told me a story about how she was talking to somebody else, and somebody else was explaining kind of like the addict brain. And that person was like, you know, we have the kind of brain like an attack dog. You know, I really 
suffered uh, my entire drinking career from just that that brain that just spins way too crazily. Those those crazy thinking patterns that no one who doesn't have this disease can understand. That's that's the why disease. like, and I don't mean to. I I know this isn't a big book study, but I you made me think of like my favorite one of my favorite parts of the book is that jaywalking story where they you know he gets hit by a fire truck or whatever he gets hit by and and to anybody else they would be like well that's ridiculous you know like why don't you just stop but to us like I so understand that doing it despite what the consequences are actions but that is another one of the bizarre thinking patterns is that you approach everything with the idea that there is no such thing as a consequence. Wait, what were they? So you had a whole list of topics. So it was fear. Fear, uncertainty, uncertainty, overwhelmed, medication, okay. and medication. Oh, medication. What's well, the medication? Part? You know, I actually, and I need a second to re- rewind my train of thought because I was talking to my sponsor today also about you know I previously was just talking about like the unmanageability of my anxiety and and I was speaking with my sponsor about the possibility of one day maybe considering an anti-anxiety medication there is only so far that the program can take you before you you might need to consider outside help and there are a lot of people in the program who don't agree with that um my overall view of Alcoholics Anonymous is to build yourself a sustainable, mm-hmm. happy life. Okay? I don't know what that means for anyone else. I'm not 100% sure what it means for me. I feel like that's my only shot of understanding what is that one myself. But, like, that's the point. And for me, alcohol was mm-hmm. what was ruining my life. And, you know, if I want to go make a bet on a game, like gambling was not my issue. A lot of other things that people have issues with, like smoking cigarettes. I was a rehab smoker, but I can stop whenever I want to stop. Like, it's kind of weird. So, like, that's my point. So people come into the program and they want to solve their alcohol problem or whatever Mm -hmm. their problem is. Or problems are. Yeah. That's up to them. But if it's not a problem, then that's okay. Yeah, yeah, it is okay. The point of this, the point of this, there, there's not like an AA leaderboard, like oh, who died with the most sobriety <laughs> points. The point is yeah. to get your life back, right? That's what I say like a yeah. zillion times. No, absolutely. Look, I mean, the big book contemplates that there are some people out there who could come in for a little while and go back out and engage in controlled drinking. That's mm-hmm. certainly not me, and <laughs> certainly not any of my friends, but like that possibility exists. Yeah. And cool. I like great for those folks. If I could be one of those folks, I 100% would be one well, of right. those folks. But I, yeah. I'm, I'm not one of those <laughs> I folks. don't want to be one of those folks. But you bring up a good point because, okay, so I'm very honest about my eating disorder. And if I, you know, nobody would tell me. Like, my eating disorder is an eating disorder, you know? And when I have the ability inside of me at the drop of a hat, depending on my mental state, to be like, I'm just not going to eat anymore, you know? And nobody would tell me that I'm taking my will back or I'm doing something wrong in my program because what that's an illness, you know? Why is there such a heavy, you know, you can't do this 
even if you have an illness, you know? Well, look, I, I mean, like so much, part of this just comes from kind of the oral tradition game of telephone that can be yeah. AA sometimes, where where things get handed down from meeting to meeting, and when you go back, like, you know, Bill himself went to Towns Hospital a bunch of times, and they gave him, like, belladonna treatments. If they'd had drugs available that could have fixed his brain, they probably uh-huh. would have been giving them to him, and I don't think Bill would have had a problem with that. I mean, Bill experimented with mm-hmm. LSD. I'm not advocating yeah. that people do that, but 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 the founder of our program saw that here was his problem and that he was free to investigate solutions for the rest of his life. But like, you got to remember, yep. there's the problem. Like that's, that's the third rail, yep. the thing we can't touch. And for every yep. person that's different, you know, for, for some people that needs to be a wider yep. group of things. I understand that for some people it can be narrower. You know, if you need help, you need help. Period. Personally, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, very significant, and I think at this point, relatively sophisticated consumer of mental health resources over the years. And uh, look, it's an indispensable part mm-hmm. of recovery. I mean, when when you're as far around the bend as I was, like there's no way to get back without really working that stuff. And but he, I think I think there is also a question of like what is what is the mix or what are the roles and. The thing that I've come to realize, and it's right there in the big book in front of us, he says it over and over again, and he and he gives us examples from his own life, but Bill tells us self-knowledge is yes. never <laughs> enough to get sober. And he tells the story of coming out of town's hospital after a stint where he wasn't drinking for a while, and they he'd learned all sorts of stuff, and he, right. he couldn't stay sober. And so, and that was exactly my experience. You know, I mean, I did the rehabs. I had, I, I couldn't stay sober because the self-knowledge, the journals full of revelations and the stories that got me here and what I was thinking and how I was going to change things. Well, that's mm-hmm. all critical. But until you have that right. spiritual awakening, it doesn't, it doesn't come together. And it, right. And it Which I think happen. is a perfect way to lead us into meditation because for me, meditation is, is the best way for me to connect to that spiritual being, that power greater than myself. And I honestly have a hard time with meditation. And I've been in a couple meetings lately, you know, and I've been hearing a lot of people talk about how they resist the good things that help them. And it's just one of those weird alcoholic thinking patterns where it's like, this helps, but I don't want to do it, you know? And uh, whenever I meditate, I feel better and I feel connected, but it's, I really struggle with sitting down and whether it's the guided meditation or just a moment of silence or whatever it might be, sometimes I resist that. I mean, I had meditation pushed on me a lot and I tried it and I just could never quiet myself down. Uh, it was just too terrifying yeah. to be quiet for that long. Um, and I'll tell you the experience that kind of changed things for me. Uh, I was living in DC and I was trying to get sober. I don't know if I was, I, I, you know, who knew I was like always 30 days in or 30 days out. And I was going to go to a yoga class this one evening 
and the only class that was available was something called Yoga Nidra. Nidra. I didn't know either. And so I go, and it's everyone getting like blankets and pillows, and it's basically <laughs> nap time up in this yoga studio. And I'm looking around, and I'm coming to understand that's what this is. And I'm like, oh, holy shit, like 45 minutes of quiet nap time? This is not going to work for TBD. I mean, and I could kind of feel the panic coming up, like that kind of enforced quietness is just not how I run. And the woman who ran it was also a, a therapist, actually. I <laughs> ended up seeing her for a while. Uh, and she was very helpful, but um, it was a guided meditation. And that 45 minutes went like wow. five. And, and after that, I found that I was able to start doing it on my own. I needed like that one kind of guided forced to show me that it was possible if I if I just followed the mechanics. And it's it's really interesting because how you talked about that panic that came up with forty five minutes of silence, and I I can't stop the thoughts for an extended period of time. And people will say, you know, we'll try a minute and then work yourself up. The way I do it is I set a timer for a minimum <laughs> of five minutes, and I usually okay. aim for ten to fifteen. And I sit on a yoga mat and I basically do breathing exercises because if I just say quiet your mind like that, like, you know, also, also try not thinking of a pink elephant, right? That's the same kind of thing or the stay puff marshmallow man. So what, what works for me is, um, just breathing. And I, I literally count the breaths. I count the kind of beats inhaling and exhaling and then I count mm -hmm. each breath in and out and I try to get to 20 and then I, re I restart and I try to have like that number be the only thing in my head for a while and then eventually that even falls away and I walk out of that feeling like all right here we go see that's the perfect reason why I should stop resisting meditation when I was in karate that we used to meditate in the beginning of class and they told us to Envision yourself pushing like a beach ball down underwater. I, I'm a little troubled by that story just because the idea of pushing down a beach ball seems a lot like drowning someone. Like it's training to drown someone. You know, there's a lot of irony in that having been in karate class. I'm not sure that was about <laughs> meditation. Wow, I've been bamboozled? I think they were teaching you to be I, a murderer. I presume I've been bamboozled for 10 years because I... I always thought that that was how you meditate. <laughs> yeah, I think we can add another uh, another M onto the murder. topic, and that's murder. Murder with a question mark. <laughs> Medication. <laughs> Medication. Murder. Meditation. Murder. Um, perhaps I should pivot to the breathing that you suggested instead of the possible murder tactics. All right, that was Miss Sober Jane. She writes here on Mondays and Thursdays, and you can always find her on Twitter and Instagram, Miss Sober Jane. Next, you've heard Daniel B. before. He's done the podcast and one of the big book study groups. He's also one of my sponsees, and he's got 10 months of sobriety. I asked him to write about some of the bad old days, and he did, and this one blew me away. I asked if he'd be willing to share it with all of you, and Daniel was nice enough and brave enough to say yes. So 
So here it is, Daniel B. with A Day with My Drug Dealer. Hi, I'm Daniel, and I'm an addict. This is a short story about my fateful day with my former drug dealer, the Ben Gordon Number no. 7 Bulls jersey-clad Daquan. While I would normally pay for a cab to have Daquan meet me near my office in Midtown, this day I happened to have my parents' car after work, so I decided to save money and drive to his place in the Delancey Projects myself. He was usually extremely cautious, having me either meet him down the block or in the key foods nearby, but today he told me to just pull up to the main entrance and meet him at the door. While I knew this would appear suspicious to any onlookers, I was pretty strung out and needed to get my fix as quickly as possible. After securing my usual order of 10 blues, aka 10 30 milligram oxys, I crushed up a couple in the car and snorted them down my nose with a dollar bill. Light on funds after just spending my last $300, I had to use a crumpled up dollar bill instead of a nice crisp 20 or 100. Driving away, my stomach sank as I noticed an unmarked car light up behind me. Not knowing if I made an illegal turn or some other minor traffic violation, I pulled over, not quite panicking, but starting to feel the impending sense of doom. When the cop asked me what I was doing at the Delancey Projects, shaking hands with a large black man, I came up with a story that I just sold him an iPad. He didn't buy it. He then asked to search my car because the man I sold the iPad to was a known drug dealer. In a moment of pure and utter defeat, the tears started flowing from my eyes as I handed him the pills that they knew I had just purchased. Handcuffed and being taken into the unmarked Crown Vic, I sat with my hands locked behind my back, sobbing in total chaos. As my mind was working overtime trying to comprehend the situation I was in while being pelted with dopamine from the oxys. At the station, they fingerprinted me removed my shoelaces, and locked me in a holding cell for several hours until I was called in for questioning. I immediately flipped on Daquan, showing them my text and call logs, his Facebook page, and other intel about his operation. Satisfied with my information, they let me go. By this time the drugs were wearing off, I decided to come clean to my girlfriend about where I had been the last six hours. I went home that night more dejected than I ever had, than I had ever been with the lone crumpled dollar being the only money to my name and with no more drugs to numb the pain. As I laid in bed that night, I decided that this was finally the bottom that I needed to hit in order to make the change in my life. Tomorrow, I would take the necessary steps to get sober and let go of control. As I fell asleep, I had every intention of doing so, except when I woke up sweating profusely and starting to feel the withdrawal set in, my mind instantly went into survival mode. Getting sober would have to wait. There were more pressing matters at the moment. Somehow, making it to work that morning, I slogged through the first half of the day trying to think of any options to, sec to secure what I desperately needed. Should I go to an urgent care facility and complain of back pain? Should I try and get hit by a car? Should I forge a prescription? With no money to my name, my options were limited. That's when I had the brilliant idea of reaching out to my girlfriend and coming up with a story that the cops needed me to make another buy with Daquan in order to get more pictures as evidence for their case against him. That's something about addicts that when our backs are against the wall, we're able to, pretty, to be pretty convincing, especially to those closest to us who desperately want to believe us. And guess what? She bought it. She Venmoed me $300, and within the hour, Daquan was in a cab on the way to my office. You're probably wondering why I would call the guy that I had just ratted out less than 24 hours before. My other dealer happened to be dry, and with no other realistic options, 
I figured the cops wouldn't have arrested him already since they were probably still ironing out their case. Bureaucratic red tape, you know? My theory was correct, and I met Daquan on 42nd Street near Grand Central Station as, as, he was, as we exchanged money for drugs out of the backseat window of the yellow cab he was in. I lived to fight another day. Well, that just blows me away. I mean, if you knew Daniel today, it's hard to believe he lived that way once. I think Daniel has a pretty hard time believing he lived that way once. <laughs> well, it's the home stretch. And here's something I wrote called My First Alcoholic. My First Alcoholic. I don't come from a family of alcoholics. My parents didn't really drink when I was growing up. Really, no one in my family drank that much. Then there was me and my alcoholism. Glowing bright, the only star in a dark sky. I started drinking at 15 or 16 and had the grand realization when I was 18 sitting by myself in a grungy black vinyl booth in a dive bar in Iowa City, listening to Strange Magic by Yellow. I was an alcoholic. Well, I didn't use that word then. Alcoholics were people whose lives were almost gone, wraiths that inhabited heating vents, VA hospitals, and the like. Their lives had mostly wasted away, and mine was all in front of me. I grew up in Iowa City, and my grandparents, my mom's parents, lived in Moline, Illinois, 60 miles east on Interstate 80. My grandfather, well, we would call him eclectic. He was born in 1911 and grew up with his three brothers on a farm near Columbus, Wisconsin, that happened to be very close to the farm where my grandmother and her three sisters grew up. He was planning on going to college, but the Depression intervened, so instead he sold produce from the farm on a truck in Madison. I know he watched those college kids pretty wistfully. He was incredibly talented with his hands, an amazing mechanic and carpenter. He refinished a lot of really beautiful antique furniture, and even recaned chairs that are still in use today. After he retired, he started painting, making jewelry, and he carved some gorgeous troll-themed Christmas ornaments that I treasure. My grandfather's basement was a completely wondrous place. Not that it was elegant or nice. It was cramped with the joists visible above and a concrete floor. It was dank, dark, and spooky. And it was my favorite place in the whole world. The basement was where my grandfather kept his tools, his guns. He was a hunter. His fishing equipment, an excellent fly fisherman, and an actual 20-foot-long archery range. He and his brother-in-law made an annual but fruitless pilgrimage to South Dakota for bow hunting. There are no trophies. After dinner, we'd get to go downstairs to the basement, and it was magical. We'd make things. I learned how to use the tools. He'd pull down the guns and show me how to use them, how to clean them, and then we'd have imaginary hunts from the stools by the big counter. All manner of pretend wildlife met their end in that basement, thanks to my skill with that unloaded .30-06. I learned how to tie flies and shoot a bow and arrow all in my grandfather's basement. The house they rented also had a garage set back on the alley, and there was even more action there. My grandfather sometimes bought wrecked cars from rental agencies, fixed them up, and resold them for a pretty tidy profit. My brother drove a ridiculously large Chrysler Imperial for a while. My grandfather was definitely a pirate. And if you wanted proof, he actually helped me build a working go-kart 
with a steering wheel salvaged from an old Ford Galaxy, Briggs & Stratton 2.5 horsepower lawnmower engine. This thing was like a rocket, and in retrospect, highly, highly dangerous. It stayed in the garage in Moline for a long time, and when he finally brought it down to Iowa City, well, my mother banned it after its maiden voyage. Somehow my brother managed to hit the side of the house on the very first try. I'm not sure who was more disappointed, me or my grandfather. I could see some pretty ferocious hissing going on as my mom questioned his lack of judgment <laughs> and directed that the go-kart must never be driven again. When we sadly loaded the go-kart back into his car, he whispered, Don't worry, it's not going anywhere. He gave a conspiratorial chuckle, and his eyes were twinkling. He kept it hidden in the back of the garage after that, for occasional, very secret joyrides in the alley. My favorite story? I was a third grader when he deemed me old enough to go on an actual fishing trip. We went to Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin. Yes, this means prairie dog in French. It was a place he often fished and had rented a cabin before. My grandmother was along, but she spent her days in the cabin reading tabloids and movie magazines and smoking. I'll never forget waking up super, super early and pulling on clothes against the chill of a late summer morning. I remember getting drenched by the dew as we bushwhacked our way to one of his preferred fishing spots along the river. Not too much later, a fly he was casting got embedded in the crown of my head. It hurt. A lot. He was examining it, and I was kind of whimpering and scared, and I didn't even notice that he had gotten his ever-present Swiss Army knife out of his pocket. He pulled me in pretty tight to him, and he deftly cut open my scalp. He made a quick perpendicular cut so he could pop the barbed hook out of my head. Zap. It was over. I don't think I felt anything. There was a fair amount of blood, and that did unnerve me. After he calmed me down and cleaned me up, and of course had a cigarette, he very matter-of-factly turned to me and said, I don't think there's a reason to mention this to your mom or grandma. It would just upset them. I nodded solemnly and went back to fishing. When I visited, I loved going with him on errands. We'd stop by the corner grocery and chat with his friend Jerry. He'd always introduce me as Grandpa's oldest boy, which I loved. Sometimes, our errands involved a visit to his friend Hank. Hank lived in a very small, pretty shabby apartment. He was a tall, angular man with a mop of grayish hair and a small mustache. He was almost always wearing a bathrobe when we visited. We'd bring groceries, things my grandmother had made for him, and we'd sit and chat while he and my grandfather smoked. I didn't really know many details, and when my grandparents talked about him, my grandmother always called him Poor Hank. I knew Hank had served in Korea. I knew that something had happened to his wife, and that he had a daughter somewhere, maybe, but never heard about her or saw her. Hank always seemed very sad, and the few times I can remember being outside with him, he just kind of shuffled along. I never saw Hank drink, but I'm pretty confident he was an alcoholic. When I first saw the picture of Bill W. sitting with Bill Dotson, AA number three, let's just say that looks exactly like I remember Hank. The only hard evidence is the plaque with a pair of hands praying and the words to the serenity prayer engraved. That was propped on his nightstand in his apartment.
I didn't realize the significance of that until I was at one of my first AA meetings. When Hank died, my grandparents cleaned out his apartment and kept some fishing stuff in the plaque with the serenity prayer. We were headed to South Dakota on a driving vacation and rejiggered the schedule so we could go to the Quad Cities for Hank's funeral. It was just the six of us there. The organist asked my grandmother if Hank had any favorite hymns, and she immediately responded, What a friend we have in Jesus. I don't know if Hank actually liked that song. I'm not a fan, but it is my grandmother's favorite. The too sweet melody on that little console organ is the soundtrack for that funeral and that memory. It's one of the saddest memories I have. When I had that moment of clarity at 18, sitting in that awful black vinyl booth, the, oh fuck, how is this ever going to end moment, the moment I knew I didn't have the ability to stop drinking. The word alcoholic wasn't yet in my lexicon, but I thought about Hank. In 2018, when things were very, very, very dark for me, there were two visions in my head that I didn't want to come true. One came from seeing my mom in an ICU bed after a heart attack, frail and defenseless and near death. Even sitting in the ICU drunk, I couldn't bear the idea of putting my kids through that. Didn't want them to have to watch me in some hospital bed somewhere as I slowly killed myself drinking. The other terrifying vision was Hank in his bathrobe. The thing that's really moving is the love my grandfather showed for a broken-down alcoholic. Sometimes, I feel like I learned everything I needed to know in my grandfather's basement. He taught me how to hunt, fish, tell jokes, roll cigarettes, play blackjack, play poker, get away with minor misstatements from time to time, and how to love alcoholics. I guess that last one was a lesson someone thought I would need eventually. When I did my fifth step in a monastery in Dubuque, Iowa, and had admitted the exact nature of my devastating wrongs to kind brother Xavier, he looked over his glasses at me as I sagged in the chair across from him, and he asked, Do you think there is anyone who could love you after all that? Of course I knew the answer. My grandfather died when I was a young lawyer. I'd spent the weekend at the hospital, and there was no question about where things were headed. He knew, too. I had to leave on Sunday night, and my heart was breaking. I knew I wouldn't see him again. I explained why I had to go. The ridiculous, unmovable trial schedule in a case in Atlanta. How sorry I was to leave. He cut me off, held my hand really firmly, and his blue eyes twinkled. He smiled and said, don't worry, I'll see you around. It's not like I'm going anywhere. And he gestured to all the stuff he was attached to. We sat for a few more minutes, and then I had to go. As I leaned down to kiss him goodbye, he pulled me in really tight for a minute and whispered, the knife is in the drawer next to the big chair. I got to the house and made a beeline for the big chair, the recliner in the living room. It was the chair he sat in when he watched Cubs games and taught me to keep score. The chair where he told the best stories about hunting adventures that I now know mostly didn't happen. It's the chair where you kept two small boys completely enthralled. It's the chair where he played checkers from, leaning back, feet up, while he directed my younger brother's moves. 
he was really, really good at checkers, and I never came close to beating him. I'm pretty glad about that. There was a little chest of drawers on the table next to his big chair. It's where he kept various treasures. He rolled his own cigarettes for a long time, and all those supplies had always been in there. But the most precious object was the Swiss Army knife. I held it in my closed hand for a long time. I thought about a lot of things. I put it in my pocket, and I headed for Chicago to get home. He died a couple of days later. His nearly last words to me were prophetic. He wasn't going anywhere. I carry him with me everywhere I go. He had an open heart, a slightly devious mind, and a truly subversive sense of humor. He was married to my grandmother for nearly 60 years, and he went to church every Sunday. He loved his grandsons more than anything, and he took care of his alcoholic friend until he died. He hung Hank's serenity plaque on the wall in the kitchen. I treasure every memory, and I realize how lucky I was to have him in my life. He taught me a lot of things. He taught me how to get myself out of tight situations with a joke and a wink. He taught me the pirate code and the importance of loyalty. He taught me that you could love an alcoholic, and that was maybe the most important thing. He was gone years before I got sober, but I knew he was there that afternoon in the monastery. I could still feel how much he loved me. I didn't tell the story about him cutting the hook out of my head until about five years after he died. Technically, the pirate code might require more than that, but it was too good a story to not tell. I know he agreed. Thanks for letting me share. Well, that's another episode of Breakfast with an Alcoholic, and I hope you enjoyed it. In fact, I hope you enjoyed it so much that you subscribe. And to make that easy, I put a button down there. You can just push it and make it happen. Go ahead, I'll wait. <laughs> cool. When you subscribe, you get the daily gratitude list, future episodes of Breakfast with an Alcoholic, the liner notes, the official discography for Breakfast with an Alcoholic, and so much more. The really great news? You can subscribe today for free. I mean, you're probably going to also be able to subscribe tomorrow for free, but wouldn't today be better? Also, I know it's Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's totally cool if you want to tell your friends about us. It's thanks, F-L-M-S, thanks for letting me share on Instagram and Twitter. So subscribe, like, share, follow, and I'll be very grateful. On a serious note, if you need help or want to learn more, nyintergroup.org has a complete listing of AA resources in New York, and there's an intergroup site for every state and a lot of countries. If you want to ask us, we'll try to point you in the right direction, too. So that's it. You can look forward to the liner notes for this episode soon, and I'm already looking forward to the next breakfast with an alcoholic, and not just because there are likely to be pancakes involved. Until then, be well, stay groovy, go to a meeting, and call your sponsor. Thanks for letting me share.